The last few weeks, we have been looking at the message of this prophet and specifically what it has to say about the nature of sin. And last week, we talked about how sin is not just a behavior issue. When Scripture talks about sin, it's not just about the good and bad things we do, but it's actually talking about something deeper. Uh, There's a deeper root behind sin. And today we continue that, talking about sin as a lack of fear. That's our topic this morning, sin as a lack of fear. But don't misunderstand me when I bring that up, because I do not think that we are a culture who lacks fear altogether. That's not the case. We have all kinds of things that we are fearful of. We fear the unknown. We fear the future. We, our political rhetoric, all the, the people who are running for office right now, so much of what they are selling to us is the things we should fear and the people we should be afraid of if they come into power or if they stay into power. We are a fear-obsessed culture. Uh, two of the most popular TV shows right now are The Walking Dead, which is about reanimated corpses who come to life and eat you, and then Fear the Walking Dead, which is about being afraid of reanimated corpses that come to life and eat you. I mean, we have plenty of fear. We have plenty of fear in our culture, but our passage says today that the fear we lack, and what we're going to be talking about is the fear of God. Our passage says the problem with Israel And our problem as well is that we are a fearful people, but we fear the wrong thing. And so we're going to need to unpack that this morning. I think this idea of the fear of God is probably one of the least understood concepts for modern culture. It's something we just don't understand in our culture and even in the church. We don't understand what it means to fear God. So what I want us to do is to take this concept today and see uh, what our text has to say about it. I want us to see the purpose of fearing God, and then I want us to understand the meaning of the term fearing God, and then finally I want us to learn the path to become God-fearers. Know the path to fear God. So let's start out this morning by figuring out the purpose of fearing God. We probably need to do a quick recap here. I know there's a a lot of people who weren't here last week, uh, but the beginning of this chapter, we're in the middle of chapter 2 of Jeremiah. Get out your Bibles if you haven't already. If you don't own a Bible, please take one with you. The, we, we want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Um, but here's how it starts out. It starts out telling us about this wonderful relationship that the nation of Israel had with God. And the picture it gives is of a bride that was desperately in love with her husband, that followed him even into the wilderness because uh, she desired to be with him. It tells us that God set them apart in verse 3 as a first fruits, as this holy nation that he protected them and watched over them. But as we saw by the end of that passage in verse 13, it tells us that this bride, this nation of Israel that had once loved God so much, it said, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so that's where we pick up. That's where we pick up today with, the, with verses 14 through 19. And here's, here's what it says. Um, we need a little bit of a historical preface here. What, what we're going to be talking about, um, Israel, the nation of Israel, in its heyday, was a united 
one united nation. You might remember this uh, from Bible stories under the reign of King Saul and David and Solomon. It was this growing and powerful nation. But after Solomon's reign, the nation was torn apart into Judah in the north that had one set of kings and Israel in the south that had a separate set of kings. And Israel eventually uh, left faithfulness to God. They slowly degraded. And by 722 BC, they were conquered by the nation of Assyria. They were destroyed. And so our prophecy, this thing that we're reading today, comes after that. This is coming sometime between 722 and 609 BC. It's actually sometime even smaller than that during the reign of King Josiah. Um, And here's what it says. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? So this is the southern nation, right? Why has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They've roared loudly. They made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitants. And now he looks to Judah. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in this way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. So it's important to remember the destruction of Israel is is not that far off in their memory. It's probably something like our collective memory of of World War II or World War I, you know, just depending on when this, this came. But it's something that we all kind of have, uh, it's reality for us still. Um, And what it's saying here is that even though they saw that happen, even though though they saw this southern nation destroyed, now this northern nation, the people of Judah, are chasing after these broken cisterns. He uses the language of water, right? Going to the Nile, going to the Euphrates, going to the nation of Egypt, where the Nile is. They're going to the Euphrates, they're going to Assyria, and they're building partnerships, They're looking to these once enemy nations, the ones who destroyed their their southern neighbors, and then also Egypt, who had enslaved them generations before. They're going to these enemy nations to find security, to find safety. And of course, God says, that's going to destroy you. Following after these things will destroy you. So why would they do that? Why would Judah seek refuge in the arms of these enemies? Why would they turn away from God and believe that this would be a better path? Well, it all comes down to the final line in our text this morning where it says, the fear of me is not in you. The fear of me is not in you. Now, to our ears, that sounds ominous. Doesn't that line seem like something a villain would say in a movie? Can't you imagine Ultron in the last Avengers movie saying, the fear of me is not in you, right? Blasting everybody. I think we should talk about that for a second. A lot of people, when they come to the Bible and they see a place like this where God is demanding people fear him, we hear that and we say, well, that's exactly the problem. That's the problem with religion. It's all fear-based. It's all about this angry God, this vengeful God who threatens people and tells them to behave or else. 
And then it goes and it creates a fearful and vengeful people who say, you need to conform to our rules or else. And certainly that's happened, right? Certainly in history, we see that religion has had that effect on people. But that is a total misunderstanding of this text. That's a total misunderstanding of the way the word fear is being used in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, what God is trying to communicate when he says, the fear of you is not in me, he's not just trying to say, I want your obedience. He's not saying, I wish you would behave. Remember, I, I told you this was during Josiah's reign. It was in that section a second ago where I was rambling about history. <laughs> they were in, in Josiah's reign, where Josiah was actually a great king. Josiah was one of the best kings that Judah ever had. He was a reformer. He brought more practice of God's law into that society. It's not simply about behavior. This, God's not so concerned with behavior here. He's concerned with something deeper. Yeah, they had done bad things. They have broken the rules by seeking allegiances and alliances with these other nations. But the core of this call to fear God is more than stop doing the bad stuff and start doing good stuff. And we know this for a few reasons. We know it, one, because this type of fear, this usage of the word fear, shows up all over Scripture. It's used in this exact same way in a lot of passages, maybe some of them that you recognize. So, uh, Proverbs 23, it says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. What that verse is showing us is that the fear of God is not just... It's not first about actions, but it's about your heart. It's about something that happens internally. Don't let your heart envy sinners, but instead fear God. Fear is not just our actions. Uh, the beginning of Job. If you've read that book before, you might recall it begins with a description of Job, God's servant. And it says, he is one who feared God and turned away from evil. Feared God and he turned away from evil. There's a, there's a few passages like that. A lot of different passages where we see the fear of God differentiated from morality. They're connected, but they're not the same thing. Fearing God is something deeper. Fearing God is something more than just following the rules. Fearing God is something that precedes following the rules. The most famous fear quote is Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the context for our wisdom. It's the basis for our action. It's the starting point for obedience that pleases God. Fearing God is essentially, according to this, fearing God is knowing God. And knowing God has to come before obeying God. And that's the way it comes all throughout the Bible. God wants our hearts, not simply our behavior. A lot of times we say something like that here at this church when we collect our tithes and offerings. We say you know, to the visitors, let the offering pass you by because God wants your hearts and not your money. And the truth is, God actually wants your hearts and your money. <laughs> he wants all of you. He wants everything about your life, but he wants your hearts first. He wants it in that order. This is the essence of the gospel here. 
God's not just out to correct your behavior. The purpose of Jeremiah's statement, the purpose of fearing God is that fearing God leads to pleasing God with our actions, not the other way around. Fearing God leads us to please God with our actions, but not the other way around. Okay? You following me? All right, so that's the purpose. That's why this statement's in here. Uh, but what does it mean? What's the, what's the point? What, is, what exactly is fearing God? To get around, get our heads around that idea, I think first we need to talk about what it's not. Because the way we typically use the word fear in our culture, uh, well, it's the common way. It's, the, it's what fear means, right? Like fear factor. Remember that old show where people ate spiders and other gross things? Like that's what we think about when we think about fear. Maybe to help us as we're talking about one word with two meanings, let's just call this worldly fear this morning. This type of fear I want to refer to as worldly fear. It's, it's this kind of fear that the Bible does talk about. The Bible uses fear this way as well. Uh, it comes up in uh, 1 John. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' followers, he writes a letter and he says, in 1 John, uh, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. So there's this kind of fear, the fear that we are used to, the way we use the phrase, that has to do with punishment. There's this fear that has to do with the dread of consequences, the fear of being harmed, whether it's the fear of, of being eaten by zombies or the fear of not having enough money to pay your rent or the fear of living a life where you are unloved. It's the fear of harm. It's the fear of pain. It's the fear of suffering. And that kind of fear, this worldly fear, was rampant in Israel. They had no lack whatsoever of this kind of fear. They feared everything. They feared attack from these nations that surrounded them. They feared poverty. They feared that they would not have a fruitful harvest. They feared all sorts of things. And that's why they went after these other nations. That's why they made these treaties with Egypt and with Assyria. That's why they went after false gods like Baal, this fertility god. The fear of pain, the fear of harm, controlled them. It was rampant then. And it's rampant today. It's rampant today even in the church. Now, we aren't the kinds of people who will fear our country's failure. Right? We're Americans, of course. You know, we never, we're, we're, we're notorious for thinking our 200-year empire will never end. Right? We're not afraid of that. But there are plenty of things that we are afraid of. There are plenty of things that cause us, like these people, to compromise our faith, to run in the opposite direction. Marilyn Robinson, uh, she's a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, uh, she wrote the book uh, Gilead, a bunch of, and some other books as well. Um, she was recently interviewed in the New York Times. And as sort of a wise sage, they asked her this very loose and open-ended question. They said, what do you think people should be talking about more? I don't know how you would answer that question, but after it seemed like just a little bit of thought, she said, 
One of the things that bothers me is that there are prohibitions of an unarticulated kind that are culturally felt that prevent people from actually saying what they think. She said there are these unspoken pressures that keep people from saying what they actually think. She goes on to say that this kind of fear, the fear of these silent cultural pressures, not only keeps us from saying what we should say, saying what we think, but also from doing the things we know that we should do. So when asked what we're not talking about enough, she says the one thing we don't talk about enough is how we are constantly in fear. We are constantly uh, fearing whether or not the world approves of us. We're constantly fearing losing the approval of the world. And the thing that I think drives many of us to abandon God, that drives many of us to remain silent when we should speak, not to act when we should act, is just that. It's this fear of others. It's this fear of approval. Now, historically, it cannot be argued. Uh, it is a fact that Christians have been some of the most outspoken people in history. That slavery fell because Christians who took their faith seriously stood up in opposition to culture and said, this is not right. In our own country, uh, the civil rights movement, by and large, was, was pushed forward on the backs of Christians who said, I'm going to oppose my culture here. I'm going to stand up and say, this is not the way things should be. Christians did that. But not all of them. A lot of them didn't do anything. I was just that some people in this very denomination that our church is a part of did absolutely nothing. We were just at our general assembly this summer, which when all the churches that call themselves, we're Presbyterian church, surprise, um, we're a Presbyterian church, and we, we had our, uh, our gathering, and one of the oldest members of, of the denomination, he was probably in his late 80s, who had helped even form this, this church back in the 70s when we took our own title, um, he said, my microphone's off. That's not going to be good for the recording, folks. Sorry about that. Um, he got up and he said that he was guilty. That he looked back on his life as a pastor in Mississippi and he realizes that when his brothers and sisters were suffering, when they, when they were being treated unjustly, he did nothing. He got up weeping at the microphone and said... I didn't lift a finger. I didn't lift a finger. I think we look back on history and we want to think that if we had lived back then, if we'd been players in the civil rights movement or if we had been alive during the, the abolition movement, that we would have been on the correct side of history. But you don't really have to look back then. You just need to look at right now. Look at yourself right now and ask, are you standing and speaking up for anything? Are you standing and speaking up for anyone other than yourself? Or has your desire to not seem radical kept you from lifting a finger? It's not just the social issues, though, where we're controlled by fear. It's even something as simple as, as talking about our own faith. 
A lot of us in this church just read a book called Honest Evangelism. And it was talking about the difficulty of, of talking about Christianity with other people. And what he described as the main inhibitor, the main thing that prevents us from sharing our faith with others, he called it the pain line. He says that there is this line that we have, this mental line that, that we know if we cross over it, it's going to hurt us. That if we cross that line, we're going to be outed as Christians. People might think we're strange. And, and, and there's a cost to it. And we're afraid. He even tells the story of his own grandmother, the author of this book. His name is Rico Tice. He talks about his grandmother being on her deathbed. And she didn't know Jesus. And he said, I need to, in his head, he said, I really should need to tell her. But he felt... Uh, that his non-Christian family and everyone sitting around him would, would judge him, that it would make them uncomfortable and it would make him uncomfortable. And so he said he remained silent. And he watched his grandmother pass away. And now it is one of the biggest regrets of his entire life. We don't speak up about our faith because our, our culture has told us that it's inappropriate. And we're afraid of the pain. We're afraid of the pain of being shunned or thought of as, as strange people. And so we shut up and we wall ourselves in and we protect ourselves. And that is exactly what 1 John means when it says there is no fear in love. There is no fear in love because that kind of fear, the kind of fear that keeps us silent while our brothers and sisters suffer, the kind of fear that keeps our faith quiet as we watch other people die, that kind of fear has nothing to do with love. It's the opposite of love. It's all about self-protection. It's all about getting what we want. It cares nothing about God, and it cares nothing about other people. Worldly fear. It causes us to live lives based out of our own interests rather than God's interests. And there's a hundred other examples I could use. Those are just two of them. I, the fear of being alone keeps us in relationships that we know we shouldn't be in. The fear of getting overlooked for a promotion keeps us from behaving honestly in our jobs. The fear of not having enough money keeps us from, from taking a day off and actually honoring the Sabbath. We are a people who are full of fear. The list could go on and on forever. And so that brings us back to our passage. We fear a lot. We fear almost everything. But God says, the fear of me is not in you. The fear of me is not in you. But what is that exactly? I've tried to think of how to illustrate this. And I, I think the best way for us to understand what it means to fear God is just to look at it in Scripture. And it's a passage that we were in just a couple of weeks ago. We referenced it. Isaiah chapter 1, or Isaiah chapter 6. Um, if you've got your Bibles, you could turn there. But it's the story of this other prophet and his call into ministry. And in the beginning of this, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, being Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In verse 5 it says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
This first moment when Isaiah sees God and he is filled with that first kind of fear, honestly, he's filled with this terror of harm. He's filled with a sense of, of God's terrible nature. And you know what? Uh, that's totally reasonable. Scripture tells us that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If there truly is a God who is holy, a God who is perfect in every way, who created this world out of nothing, who made everything that we have, then we owe him everything. Can you imagine standing in the presence of pure goodness? Can you imagine seeing yourself standing next to pure righteousness and perfection and holiness? Of course you would be frightened. Of course you would be afraid. Anytime in Scripture someone encounters holiness, time after time, their reaction is to cower. Their reaction is to be afraid. But that's not the end of this passage. It's only the beginning. Verse 6 tells us, Then one of the angels flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Verse 8. That is the fear of God. That is this, the moment in Isaiah's life when there was an apprehension of God's majesty, of His glory, of His complete dominion over the world and over Isaiah specifically, but it was combined with this confidence to stand before Him. This belief that He had been cleansed before Him. This that had transformed him to, to have a, a burning desire for nothing else but God. It was the kind of fear that when God says, who am I going to send? Isaiah immediately responds with, send me. I want nothing else but you. Send me whatever you want me to do. That's what I'm going to do. See, worldly fear, it's about self-protection. It's about yourself. It's about loving yourself. But it's really the opposite of love. But this fear, the fear of God, is love itself. Fearing God is not about knowing and conforming to some moral standard. But it is about being personally transformed by the power of God. And the effect of that on our lives is boldness, it's holiness, it's righteousness, it is appearing like a moral person. It is standing against the world and the evils of the world. But the heart behind it is love. The heart behind it is devotion, not fear. So that's, that's what it means. Uh, but how do we get there? How do we become people who are God-fearers instead of world-fearers? G.K. Chesterton, uh, a British uh, priest, I guess. I don't know, he's Catholic. Um, he said, We fear men so much 
because we fear God so little. We fear men so much because we fear God so little. But then he says, but one fear cures another. One fear cures another. The fear of God can cure our fear of the world. The fear of God can cure the fear of man. Do you remember Psalm 23? That's a popular one, right? Um, if you, we read it at, at funerals. We, I even heard that it used to be the case that people even memorized this in elementary school. But it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Doesn't that sound great? Isn't that something that you want? Isn't that something that you would love to possess right now? Shelter? Shelter from the storms of life? The ability to walk with confidence amidst even the most difficult and most uncertain circumstances? But where does that come from? How do we get that? Well, there's only one way. And we just saw it. We just looked at it as we saw the story of Isaiah, but we see it again uh, in Acts chapter 2, another passage we were not too long ago. But Acts chapter 2 is the story of the beginning of the church. And, And in this account, it's the story of Peter preaching the gospel for the first time. He's addressing a crowd that a little over a month ago, many of them were in the same crowd that crucified Jesus. People who had had seen him put to death. And he spells out the basic truth of Scripture, the things that we all need to know. That God exists and that he is holy and that he is righteous. And that we are not. That we have not kept his commands. And we are guilty before him. We cannot stand in his presence. Right? Just like Isaiah. That if we were to stand in the presence of God, we would know immediately that we are unclean. But the gospel message is that God, in his love, sent Jesus Christ as our substitute. That God the Son, the one who was holy, God himself, God in all his majesty and terror and awe, took on flesh. He humbled himself and he came down to earth and he lived a life amongst us. He lived a life for us as our substitute and we killed him. The way Peter says it is he says, This Jesus who you crucified was both Lord and Christ. So in the, in the story of Acts, as Peter is preaching to this crowd, it tells us that the moment Peter releases that bombshell, <laughs> they are cut to the heart. That's what it says. They're cut to the heart and they say, brothers, what are we going to do? That is the first step. I just want to stop there and say that is the first step to fearing God. There has to be a moment where this message cuts you to the heart. There has to be a moment when the reality of God before you makes you cry out, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a woman of unclean lips. I have no hope. 
There has to be a moment when you realize that you are guilty and you feel it. But then Peter answers them with these great words. He says, repent and be baptized. This is what you should do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. He says the the point of the cross was that Christ's life was substitutionary, but also his death was substitutionary. He was our substitute. He got the punishment that we should have gotten on the cross. And the good news of the gospel is that, that God has made a way through Jesus to cleanse us from our sins. Like that angel who flew out to Isaiah and touched his lips with the coal. The gospel is what cleanses us before God. And here's why I brought this up. Here's why I skipped all the way to this part of the Bible, even though we're in Jeremiah. Here's what it tells us happened. This is the way that King James said it. These people, it says they gladly received this word and they were baptized. And that same day there were added to them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers And here's what it says. And fear came upon every soul. The moment when fear came upon their souls was not the moment when they were cut to the heart. It was not the moment when they were terrified. But it was the moment when they saw God's grace on display. It was the moment when they realized that they belonged to God and God belonged to them. That is the fear of God. That is the fear that drives obedience. That is the only kind of fear that's ever going to transform us. That's the only kind of power that's ever going to change you. Our New Testament reading. Do you remember that? It was from 2 Corinthians. Paul was assuring his church, he was assuring the early church of this very fact. He says, the gospel is that the dwelling place of God is now with us. In Christ, that temple that Isaiah saw, that was filled with God, that was filled with God's glory, that that brought him to cry out, that temple that gets filled with the Spirit, it says, is us. We are the temple of the living God. And And God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And here's how Paul concludes. He says, since we have these promises, since he promises that he's going to be with us, that we are the temple filled with his glory, let us then cleanse our body from every defilement, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The gospel is that fear comes before obedience, not the other way around. And I want to invite you this morning as as we close to respond to that message. The truth is we are a people who are full of the wrong kind of fear. We are terrified by the world around us. And if we're being honest, As we open up this text, as we start to understand what it means, and we hear those words, the fear of me is not in you. That cuts us to the heart. 
But God calls us today. He says, Behold the glory of Jesus Christ and let one fear cure the other. Let's pray. Lord, what does it mean for us to fear you? What does that look like in our lives today? What will our afternoon be like if the thoughts in our head are filled with your glory and your awe and your majesty, with your power and your sovereignty instead of the things that have enslaved us, the things that have us wrapped up in chains? Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for being a people who've kept silent. I'm haunted by the voice of that man confessing that that he didn't lift a finger when his brothers and sisters suffered. And I wonder, 40 years from now, what things I will have to say that about. God, I, I pray that you would transform us from a people that fear this world to a people who fear you. I pray, God, that you would show us the glory of the gospel and that we would draw near to you in assurance of your grace. And Lord, I want to pray for anybody here this morning who who may not know you at all. Maybe this is the first time they've opened the Bible in a long time. And they aren't sure about all these things. Lord, I pray that you would show up in their life today. I pray that you would give them a vision like the one you gave Isaiah, that they would see your glory and that they would bow. I pray, Father, that all of us here who are coming wounded by our sin would be reminded of your your grace and your mercy that's new every morning. And that we would come to this table together in fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.